I'm just going to briefly go over what we've covered so far. So this is just a really, really brief overview. Um, obviously, I'm going to leave out a lot of things. But basically, I just wanted to kind of be able to round out the whole story. So Genesis 1 to 11, we know was the creation story. We know God created humans in his own image to rule and reign with him in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. But because we're human, we sinned. And we were banished from the Garden of Eden. We were banished from being in perfect relationship with God. And all throughout Genesis, all the way to Genesis 11, there's a downward spiral of sin and wickedness. And God just has enough. And then he, at the Tower of Babel, he just, or Babylon, he just scatters all the people. He says, he's had enough. I'm scattering you all. You're all exiled. Then in Genesis 12, we meet Abraham. And Abraham is the man and the family that God has chosen to now bring all of his people, all of creation, back to God, to bring them back into relationship with him. And he promises Abraham many descendants. He promises him a land flowing with milk and honey. And he promises his, that his family would be a blessing to the nations. And so God uses Abraham, even with all of his mistakes, all of his flaws, and he blesses him and he gives him descendants. And then all of these descendants end up being in Egypt, and they actually end up being exiled in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. And Moses comes along and brings all of the Israelites out of Egypt. There's lots of miracles, but people, the Israelite people, are still stiff-necked, still stubborn, still refuse to trust in God even though God is feeding them manna from the sky and quail and water from a rock, they're still not thinking that this God or their God could take care of them. And so uh, God again says, well, you don't get to come into the promised land then. This is the consequence for your sin. And then we go to Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And that's where finally the next generation of Israelites can enter the promised land and they conquer all these nations with the help of God, um, with Joshua. And then Joshua dies, and then Judges is all about the downward spiral of the Israelites again, with all these wicked judges, everyone doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And God still loves them, but he says, you're going to now be disciplined. And so now he has neighboring enemy nations coming, and attacking them, and then they, they go and they ask for a leader, and the leader comes and tries to set them straight, and then they sin again, and it's just this cycle of rebelling and discipline and not learning their lesson, and that is all of Judges. It's, it's a very depressing book, actually, if you read it all the way through. But then we get to Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, and that was last week, and Pastor Ari did such a wonderful job of teaching us about the different kings and their different heartedness. We talked about Saul, who had no heart towards God, and David, who had a whole heart towards God, and Solomon, who only had half a heart. And we hear about how wonderful the times were, the Israelite times were, with King David. Um, and then after Solomon, things again went downhill, and the Israelites again chose to worship other gods, they uh, became basically like their neighboring pagan neighbors. So they became like the Canaanites, and they continued to break the covenant. And Pastor Ari ended off with talking about how the Israelites then went into exile. So they were removed from the promised land, the land that was promised to them by God, the land that took them so many years to get to. They were removed from that land, and they were set into the land of their oppressors and their enemies. So my job is now to finish off the entire rest of the Bible. And so that is basically all the prophets. So there's 12 of them. And I have to do all of this in one sermon. But don't worry, because that's impossible. And it's not going to happen. Um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of information about the prophets so that it will hopefully get you guys excited about the prophets. So the prophets are kind of difficult to read. Um, they are all about 
God's judgment and God's redemption and God's promises. Um, but they're kind of written in a way that's really poetic. There's really beautiful imagery. And these prophets are really extreme. Like, they're intense, these prophets. Like, um, if you ever feel like you are called to be a prophet, please read these books first and make sure you know what you're asking for. Like, these, these prophets were intense. They did some crazy things. Uh, for instance, one of these prophets were was told to walk around naked for three years as a symbolic picture of the humility that Israel would have as they were exiled. Another prophet was told to lay on his left side for 390 days. I don't know exactly why, but that was what he was called to do, and he did it. Another prophet, Hosea, was called to, was told to name his children unloved and without parents. So he named his children unloved and without parents. Um, I don't know about you, but as a mom, I would never name my children that. But this guy, Hosea, was obedient to God, and he knew that his calling was to be a prophet. And so he knew that he needed to send a message to the Israelites. So some really weird things. There's one really funny thing. Uh, Jeremiah was told to take his underwear and hide it in a rock and then go and get it later. So I hope this is kind of making you guys curious and you guys are like, oh, I'm going to read about this tonight when I get home. Um, but I really hope that, you know, I'm not going to be able to cover everything, but it'll help you to understand the, the books of the prophet more and hopefully get you excited about the prophets. So I just wanted to kind of give you a little bit of um, how to read the books of the prophets. Um, so there are three major themes that happen through the book of the prophets. The first is always a message from God. Usually it's an accusation towards the Israelites because they're usually messing up. So it's usually God saying through the prophet, you're messing up. You're breaking my laws, you're breaking my covenant, um, you're being disobedient, you're rebelling. And then usually there's a call to repentance. So then the, the prophet is usually telling them, come on, guys, turn away from your sin and turn back to the Lord. He loves you. After that kind of theme or that message is a judgment of God. So usually the prophets weren't actually listened to during that time. Like a lot of the prophets that are found in the Bible, they, they were put into the Bible because the words that they spoke actually were fulfilled. They became true. But at that time, when the prophets were speaking to the Israelites, the Israelites thought these guys were false prophets. They, they didn't want to hear the bad news about God judging them. And so... The, the other theme that kind of goes through the prophetic books is this theme of judgment and this theme of, well, the consequence to your sin and your rebellion is now exile or some sort of discipline, like being attacked by your enemies. And then lastly, it's not just doom and gloom because there is almost always this underlying promise of hope and good news through all the prophetic books. So even though it's God accusing them and telling them that they're going to go into exile or they're going to receive some kind of discipline, uh, in the end, it's always about God's love and how God will bring about a new covenant. He's going to bring something new. He's going to bring a king who will rule over the nations and restore all of Israel and all the world actually to him. So there's always that kind of underlying tone, underlying theme going through the prophetic books. But today, we're just going to look at one of them. We're going to look at Jeremiah today. So Jeremiah, I relate to him because he's actually, his nickname is called the weeping prophet. So I really... I connect with him on a very deep level. 
Um, but he was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final days of the southern kingdom of Judah. So if you remember last week, um, Pastor Eric talked about how the, the kingdom of Israel was now divided into two. There was the northern, northern kingdom of Israel, and then there was the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel actually um, was attacked first. And they were, it was destroyed first, and all the Israelites in that kingdom were, were scattered into exile. So Jeremiah was in the southern kingdom. And at that time, there was no exile. There was no um, Babylonian siege. But there was always talks of it. There was a threat of it. And in this time, the kingdom of Judah, all these Israelites, were continuing to break covenant laws. They were continuing to treat their widows and their orphans poorly. They were continuing to work on Sabbath. They were continuing to worship idols. And so they were doing the same thing that had happened all the way from Genesis. And so Jeremiah said, look, you're keeping, you're continuing to do all of these things, breaking the covenant with God through your idolatry and your injustice. And now the empire of Babylon is going to come as God's servant to bring judgment on you, Israel. And it's going to destroy you, and it's going to take all of your people into exile. And so you can imagine what the Israelites thought of Jeremiah. <laughs> they actually didn't listen to him. They thought he was crazy. They wanted him killed. They, you know, he was constantly being rejected. And so that's why he always weeped over Israel, because they were always telling him, no, we don't, we don't want to listen to you because what you're saying is not true. Um, but his words became reality, and he actually lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, and he watched the exile of many of his fellow um, Israelites personally. But he was left in Jerusalem. And so he was left in Jerusalem, and then there's a bunch of Israelites that are now in exile in Babylon. And that is what I'm going to preach on today. So if we can all rise, we're going to just uh, read this passage together. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 13. So would you can all sit down. Um, let's just pray and then we'll get right into the sermon. God, I just pray that you would use me as your vessel. Father, that you would anoint my lips, that you would speak the words that you want to speak, God. And I pray for the soil of um, our people's hearts to be soft and ready to receive whatever it is that you want to say. So, Lord, help me not to get in the way. I just pray that you would um, guide me and speak through me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay. So, this sermon today is going to be about home. So, what are some things, what are some words or phrases that pop into your mind when you think about the word home? Don't be shy. Yes, Ray? Food. 
Anyone else? That's a good one. Rest. Anyone else? Family. Yes, family. Yes. Safety. Anybody else? Yes? Cozy and warm. And I think I heard comfort over here. So home has some really beautiful, lovely connotations to it. Um, we hear the word, the phrases, home, sweet home. Or Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz says, there's no place like home. Or home is where the heart is. How many of you guys love watching those um, videos where the soldiers return home? And they're like, they surprise their kids at school. And, you know, there's something about the return home that just gets to us. Because we all have this universal longing for home for safety, for belonging, for love, for comfort. And so this is something that we all feel. And the Israelites back in those days when they were exiles also felt that longing. I felt that longing um, when I was, I don't even remember, but I just graduated from university and I had gone to Korea. And it was my first trip actually away from my home for an extended period of time. I was gone for two months. And I was really excited to go to Korea because, you know, it's where my parents are from. My parents would always say, you have Korean blood running through you. You should know what Korea is like. That's such a bad Korean accent. <laughs> Sorry. But something, you know, like that. Um, and, you know, they, they would just, I wanted to know, like, what, what, is, what is this country that they keep talking about? And, you know, why are my parents like this? And I felt like I, if I go to Korea, I'll discover more about them. And I wanted to actually brush up on my Korean because my Korean was not very great. And so I had some really great experiences in Korea. I went to this place called Flower Village, and I volunteered there for a week. And it was this village made that was created by nuns, actually, who um, would kind of go along the streets and they would pick up abandoned seniors. So, you know, grandmothers or grandfathers that had been abandoned by their families, and they would bring them to this village that was like in the middle of the mountains, and they would just take care of these, these older people. And if you know me, I love old people. Um, so I, I had such a great time there. It was like a week of just taking care of old people old people. And they didn't make fun of my Korean, which was great. Um, also, I had this really awesome opportunity to go on a, to a camp. It was called um, the Korean um, Army Camp or Peace Camp. Um, but it was like just for women, just for girls to come and experience what it was like to be a soldier. Because in Korea, at the age of 18, every, all the men are actually enlisted. They have to go into the army, um, but the women don't have to go. So for them, it's like a fun experience because we get to shoot guns and sleep in the barracks and do all of that fun stuff, but we don't actually have to be soldiers for two years. Um, so I got to do that, and that was really, really great too. Um, but despite all of these really great experiences, I really missed home. And it's not because my family was not good to me. They were really good to me. They took care of me. They fed me. But again, my Korean was not very good. Like at that army camp, um, it was like a big thing. And they had um, all these like news stations come and interview all the attendees, and I actually got interviewed a couple times because I was the only Canadian there. And my Korean is so bad that they had to subtitle my Korean, like under me. That's how bad my Korean is. And so for me, it was really difficult being in Korea because like, I could only have conversations like a three or four-year-old, and it's really hard to have deep meaningful conversations when you can only talk like a three or four year old. And so it was actually like kind of eating away at me that I couldn't really have like deep conversations with people. And it was so frustrating to me that I just couldn't get the words that were in my head out of my mouth. Um, also, I just, my, my aunt and uncle that I stayed with, they were actually afraid of me being kidnapped. I don't know why, because I was like 20. But they were really scared of me being kidnapped and sold for who knows what. So I actually couldn't go out that much by myself. So I was kind of attached to my aunt. 
um, unless I had someone that I was meeting and, you know, they knew exactly where I was going. And so I, I kind of felt a little bit trapped, actually, in Korea because I didn't, um, I couldn't drive anywhere. I couldn't go out whenever I wanted to. Um, and then on top of that, I just couldn't communicate with people. And so I really, really missed home. I missed Canada. I missed seeing, like, all different ethnicities because in Korea, you only see, like, lots and lots of Koreans. So I really missed seeing like people of all different colors. I missed like being able to buy pants that could fit me because in Korea, like pants are super small and tight. Um, I just missed, I missed being home. I missed my family and my friends. And I remember when my, my brother picked me up from the airport and we were driving home and I was, we were just about to round the corner to my house. And that feeling I had of like, oh my gosh, I'm almost home. And I, I was literally crying because I was so excited to finally be home. I was just overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to be home. And that feeling lasted for like two days. And then I realized, oh, my home is not like this beautiful paradise where everyone gets along. I still fight with my brothers. You know, I'm still like arguing with my parents. I still have issues. You know, it's not like this beautiful utopia, my home. And I realized that actually what my heart was longing for was connection. And what my heart was longing for was actually not a place. It was, it was a longing for something, something. And being away from home, being in a foreign land, just accentuated this feeling like, I really want home. I really want home. And if we look and we think about the Israelites when they are exiled in Babylon, you can imagine that this is probably how they felt too. They felt like, I want to go home. I'm I don't want to be in Babylon. These people destroyed my home. They basically kidnapped me. And they're foreigners. I'm a foreigner in their land. I, I want to get out of here. Um, but not only that, the land actually meant something very different to the Israelites than it does to us today. So Jerusalem and this promised land actually for them symbolized God's blessing. So when they were in that land and they occupied that land, it showed that God was with them, that God was blessing them, that God had favor on them. And for these exiles being banished from the land, they thought this meant, well, God has left us. God has abandoned us. We are now under the curse of God. He's no, he's no longer for us. And so they longed for home, not just because it was a place of comfort or where they grew up, but also because for them, it was about being in the presence of God. And the temple, the temple was where God dwelt, where his presence was, was in Jerusalem, was in their home. So they felt like, well, in Babylon, we will never hear from God. In Babylon, God has abandoned me. But if you guys remember, the story of the Israelites before they went into exile, and Ari went through this a little bit, it was not a, like you can imagine, it's not a peaceful place to live in. They had um, neighboring enemies that were constantly trying to occupy their land. And then the leaders within, is, within Jerusalem were not kind, good, loving people, after David anyways, they were people who were corrupt, and they were people who didn't care about the oppressed, and they didn't care about God. So it probably was not the best place to live. But, but the, what the Israelites didn't realize is that this longing that they had for Jerusalem and for home was actually not for that physical space. It was for the presence of God. And what I wanted to do, so I just wanted to go through this letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles from God. Um, and I wanted to go through it verse by verse to kind of show you what God was saying to the Israelites. And then hopefully through that, we can see what God is saying to us. So let's go through it verse by verse. So this is the first thing that 
I wanted to kind of highlight. And that is, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the Lord Almighty also translates in other translations as the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, Lord of hosts literally means the Lord of armies, like plural. So God is trying to remind the Israelites, even through that first, these first couple of words, that he is the Lord over all of these things. He's the Lord of the Israelites. He's the Lord of the Babylonian enemies, armies. He's the Lord of all of their enemies, armies. And so this should encourage these exiles because they know that God is actually the one that's in control, not Babylon. Also, Jeremiah made sure to write down that God carried them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It wasn't Babylon that carried them into exile. It was God. It was a consequence for their sin. So this is a reminder to these Israelites, to these exiles, that they're in exile because of their own hands, because of their own doing. And God actually allowed this to happen. He's in control. He saw this happening. He actually ordained it to happen. So this phrase, even though it's kind of like, oh, God, why would you do that? It actually would have given the exiles hope that their God, who they know to be good and just, was in control. And that it was not the Babylonians that were in control. God still had these exiles in their hands. After the greeting, the letter continues with some instructions from the Lord to the Israelites. So it says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have children, increase, do not decrease. So this was surprising news to our exiles because they had heard from all their false prophets that their stay in Israel was actually going, oh, sorry, in, in Babylon was going to be for a very short time. They thought that they were only going to be there for two years and that they would return home to Jerusalem. But God is telling them, uh-uh, plant some gardens, build some homes, get married, watch your children grow up, and then marry your children off. This is not going to take two years. This is not a short time. God is saying, you are going to be here for a long time. So settle in. So it could have been kind of disappointing news for the exiles. But God is saying to them, look, this is the plan that I have for you. Don't squander it away. I don't want you to wither away in Babylon, complaining and be wondering when I'm going to rescue you. It's not going to happen for a while. But I want you to actually make a home here. I want you to be happy. I want you to celebrate. I want you to get married and make love and, and have children and do all of these things that we are all supposed to be doing, that God called us, God, God created the Israelites to do. He says, I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. I want you to make homes here. So the second shocking instruction is the next verse where he says, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. So not only is God saying to these exiles that you're going to, you need to build homes in this foreign country you know, amongst your oppressors, but he's now saying to them, you need to now pray for the people who brought you here, your enemies. Um, the word here for peace and prosperity is shalom. So we've heard many times what shalom means. It means peace, fullness, wholeness, completeness. So the Israelites are now supposed to be praying and seeking the wholeness and completeness and fullness of the people who actually destroyed their own wholeness, their own peace, their own fullness. And so, but God tells them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build homes there, make, 
make merry, have families, and I want you to pray and bless your oppressors, bless your enemies. Now, this verse should kind of bring to mind also what promise God said to Abraham when he said, I want you to, your family will bless the nations. So even in the midst of this exile, even in the midst of the Israelites' suffering, we can see how God is actually gradually fulfilling his promise for the family of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Third is this long verse about basically saying to the Israelites, don't listen to these prophets who tell you what you want to hear because they're not from me. So, and he says to them, look, you're going to be here for 70 years. Now, 70 years can be a literal number, so it could be actually 70 years, but it could also mean like the lifespan of, some, of a person. And basically, God is saying, don't listen to what you want to hear. This is the hard truth. The hard truth is that you are going to be here for a long time. And actually, the people hearing it probably were calculating in their heads and realizing, we will never return home. We will never see our homeland again. We are going to die here. Because 70 years, you would have to be like five, right, to actually have the energy to then go back all the way to Jerusalem after 70 years. So they realize God is saying, you're going to die here. It's a harsh word, but it's the truth. And it's a truth set in love because God is telling them, look, don't place your hopes in the, in the dream that you're going to return to Israel, uh, Jerusalem anytime soon. That's not going to happen for you. You need to stay here. I want you to thrive here, be fruitful and multiply here. And know that I'm saying this to you because I don't want you to put your hopes into something that is not true. Because we know, and the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So can you imagine these Israelites, if they didn't hear this word, and every year they're waiting for God to rescue them, and they continue to wait. Year after year passes by, and God still doesn't rescue them. Can you imagine how disappointed and how discouraged they would feel? But now God is saying to them, look, you're going to be here for at least 70 years. So stay put and be fruitful and multiply. Now, the Israelites, just to kind of give you some context, you need to also understand that this was actually a word that was a good word for them. Because the way that the Middle Eastern people see themselves as individuals is they don't actually see themselves as individuals. They see themselves as connected to their family, connected to their community. Everything is kind of like a connection. They're all about relationship. And so when God says to them, you will return, I will return you back to this place, he's obviously not talking to them personally. He's talking about the entire nation. And he's talking about their children. So this is actually something that encourages them and that brings them hope. Because they know, oh, you know what? We will return to Jerusalem through our children. And that is good news for them. Next is this wonderful verse that I'm sure many of you know. And you've probably seen on plaques, on Christians' walls, or on Pinterest, or whatever, Instagram, or whatever. Um, and that verse is, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So if used out of context, people can interpret this promise as saying to someone who's suffering that God's plans are to heal you right away or God doesn't want you to suffer or this is God's going to prosper you he's going to make you rich um, all of these things are not true 
in the sense of if you take this verse and understand the context, God is saying this to people who are suffering. They're going through the hardest, darkest times in their life, and he's telling them, your suffering is not going to end anytime soon. This is not me immediately coming to rescue you from suffering. In fact, you're going to have to suffer in exile for at least 70 years. So this is not about God telling them, I'm going to rescue you right now. It's about God saying to them, I have plans to give you peace even in the midst of your suffering. I have not abandoned you. I am going to make sure that no harm comes to you, your nation, because I see you and I am here with you. God promises that he has not abandoned these people. And it might seem like he's harming them. You know, for some of us reading these stories, we might think, well, why did God just not just bring them out of exile? It would have been so easy for him to do. But there's a reason why God needed to take the, Babylon, take the Jerusalem, uh, Israelites into exile. And this is because they kept rebelling and they kept turning away from him and they kept rejecting God. And the only way that they would turn back to God is if they were taken into exile and understood what it was to no longer be in the presence of God. So this was done out of love. It was not done because he's a harsh God. It was done because he knew this is the only way my Israelites, my people are going to turn back to me. And he says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that was God's desire from the very beginning. When he created Adam and Eve, that was all he wanted, was this perfect, wholehearted communion with his people. Another word for this word find when we say, you will seek me and find me, another word for this word find is encounter. And so God is telling them, if you seek me with all your heart, I will encounter you. My presence will be with you. And he's telling them, look, my presence is not tied to Israel. My presence is not, sorry, my presence is not tied to this land of Jerusalem. My presence is not tied to the temple. My presence will be with you if you only seek after me with your whole heart. Then I will find you. He's telling them, if you can turn away from your idols, if you can seek me and repent and, and run after me with your whole heart, I will meet you in Babylon. I will meet you in the land of your oppressors. So what does this mean for us? Because, you know, we're... We're not Israelites, and really, we're not exiles. We, we live in Canada. We, all of us live in our own homes. All of us have pretty decent homes. We're not being oppressed, really, by enemies. So what does this mean for us as people of God in today's time? Well, we actually are exiles because this home is not actually our true home. And it says that in the New Testament, the writers call us exiles and aliens in a foreign land. You know, the, the writers tell us, the Bible writers tell us, um, do, do not live, live in this world, but do not live, be of, no, what is it? What is, what is the worst? Be, be in this world, but not of this world. Um, so we are not actually at home here on earth. We are longing for something more. And we know, we know that. There's that longing for home, that even when we're home, we still feel that. Because we know that there's something better coming. It's like, as I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm feeling like I'm not at home in this aching, decrepit, decaying body of mine. This is not home to me. You know, like, because... This is not my renewed, restored body that I will experience in heaven. You know, or if we have relationships that are not great, that are not full of peace or shalom, 
we can feel like this is not home. And you can kind of um, relate it to like living in a house where it's your house, but you're actually undergoing renovations. How many of you have lived in your home undergoing renovations? Anyone? Stu, Sarah? Thank you. So does this, like, I've, I've actually never, I wish, I wish we could renovate our house. But um, I've heard that it's really, really hard to live in your own home during renovations, especially when it's like your kitchen or like a room that you often use. That it's really uncomfortable, it gets really dusty, but you still live there because it's your home. And you know something better is coming. You know that you're going to get the white marble countertops and the white cabinets and the beautiful appliances. You know that something better is coming. And that's kind of like how we are in this home on earth. We know that it's being restored. We know that it's broken and that there's lots of things that need to get fixed. But we live here because we know that something better is coming. And we are excited. Like, I would be so excited if I knew that my place was getting renovated. I would, I would feel like I can handle it. I can handle it because I'm going to get the marble, marble countertops that I've always wanted. But for us living here on this earth, we know that there's something so much better that's coming. That this world is only temporary. The pain and the suffering that we're experiencing is only temporary. And that something better is on its way. And God is going to restore all of it. We get little tastes of this home that we're longing for. When we, sometimes for me, I feel it when, when I'm worshiping. And I just feel this like presence of God. And I'm like, oh, that was a taste of heaven. That felt, that was so good. Or for some people, it's like when you see a beautiful piece of art or you hear this beautiful music and you realize that was a piece of heaven that had the fingerprint of God on it. Sometimes it's also about when we are just interacting with someone and it's such a good, beautiful conversation. And it's like, oh, God was in that. The presence of God was in that interaction. And you, you taste a little bit of heaven when you have those kinds of meetings. So we are exiles because we don't feel all of those things. We don't experience all of those things all the time. At least I don't. I don't know about you guys. If you do, please tell me how to how to do it on a regular basis, because it's hard, because we live in a broken world, you know, and we, we live in a world where the kingdom of heaven is here, but not yet in its fullness. We, we live in a world where the kingdom of heaven invades, but isn't yet completely around us. And so we are exiles. We can call ourselves exiles. And so what do we do how do we live as exiles? Ex, as exiles? How, what, are the, what does this passage to the letter to the Israelites tell us? Well, first of all, the passage tells the Israelites to plant gardens. So for us, that would not mean plant gardens. For some of us, maybe it would actually mean plant gardens, because that, if that's something that you love to do. But we need to be able to see that word garden, and it should actually transport us back to the first chapter in Genesis, where God creates this garden of Eden, this paradise, this place where heaven and earth are completely united, and where God has this beautiful, perfect communion relationship with Adam and Eve. That's a garden. That's the garden. So when, when God tells the Israelites, plant gardens, he's telling them, do what you were originally created to do. Be fruitful and multiply. So that doesn't mean for us now everyone needs to go get married and have lots of kids. That's not what this verse means. It means that you were created 
to do something uniquely. You were created for something that God has specific plans for. And some of you guys might know that word flow. You know when you're doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing and you're flowing in it? There's this like feeling of euphoria because you know that this is what you're supposed to be doing and you know you're being fruitful. You know you're producing something that is actually good fruit. And so when I say plant gardens and when God is telling us to plant gardens, it's, it means actually be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful in your life. How can you build gardens, plant gardens in your life? How can you have heaven invade every aspect of your life? Whether it's in your relationships, whether it's in the way that you live, um, whether it's in your home life, how do you bring heaven and a taste of heaven? How do you plant gardens in your life? One of the ways that I feel like we could plant gardens, at least for me, is being more present. So for me, I'm like so busy and I've got so much stuff going on that I feel like it's really hard to sit and listen and be completely present. But I feel like that's one way where I can actually usher in the kingdom of heaven because I can then be aware that God's presence is here with us. I can actually be aware of this person in front of me who was created in the image of God. And I can be aware that God uses every situation, every meeting to transform us and to change us. That's a little bit about bringing heaven into our relationships and planting gardens. Secondly, we can live as exiles in our home by playing the long game. So I'm not good at this. Um, I think this is a term from poker, right? This is a term from poker, playing the long game. It is, right? Right? Yes, okay. Okay, so I'm like a short, is it a, is it a term from poker? I don't know. Anyways, I know it's some kind of card game. And it's like you, you kind of sacrifice yourself at the beginning so that you can get the full reward at the end, right? And so I'm not good at that. I'm like all about instantaneous gratification. And I think most of us actually are like that. Like we want to see things here and now. We want to just be able to get what we want when we want it. And we're not really good at actually being patient and waiting things out and to see the bigger reward at the end, at the long game. And I feel like God, when he is telling these Israelites, look, you're going to be here for a long time, 70 years. You need to see the long game in this. And the fact is that you're never going to actually return home, but your children will return home. And that is the perspective of eternity. So we need to be able to look at our life with that lens, that eternal lens, to know that our situations here on earth are actually temporary, that there are so many other things that are happening down the line, and that God has this big picture already lined up for us. And it's a good thing. It's a good picture. It would help us to hold on to things loosely if we were playing the long game, if we knew that God has our backs all the way to the end. It would help us to be more free with our money. It would help us to be more free with our time. It would help us to not feel like we have to control our children or our husbands or our friends because we know that God has our back and that he is in it for the long game as we are. Um, I wanted to share a story with you about uh, Barry and Lori Byrne. Some of you guys know them from Love After Marriage. They're actually the ones that started the Love After Marriage workshop. Um, and most of you have seen them on video. And um, some of you have laughed at them because they're, they're a funny couple. Um, but they actually shared uh, on video that uh, last week their house burnt down. 
and like completely burnt down. They had two cars in the garage, everything they lost. So they lost all their photos, they lost all their clothes, they lost everything that was important to them in that house. Um, but it's amazing because they were sharing that as they were watching their house burn down and as they were grieving their loss, they just felt the peace of God come over them. And they just thought to themselves, and they said to themselves, it's just stuff. And really, that's kind of how we need to live our lives, is that this is just stuff, right? Like, what are we holding on to that is so important that we're going to take into eternity? Nothing, except our relationships, you know, our our relationship with God, those are the things that are going to matter. But how much money you make, how, you know, many shoes you have, <laughs> what your kids do for a living, you know, whether or not you're married or single, all of those things really, in the end, are not that big compared to the bigger picture and the bigger reward that is coming for all of us who believe in Jesus. So playing the long game for us should actually make us happier. It should make us be able to live our lives being like, eh, it's all right if that guy swore at me while I was driving because it's just, it's fine. Better things are coming for me. Or it's okay if my kids are breaking down every day. It's okay because I know God has my back. And I know that they're not going to do this forever. And I know that something better is coming. So we can all play the long game and have this attitude that eternity is so much better than what we can even imagine. Lastly, we can live as exiles by eliminating exile. So what does that mean? So if you guys remember, the consequence of sin was exile. So the end of exile, the way to eliminate, eliminate exile is to get rid of sin. But we, as human beings, we, we can't do that, obviously. We can't erase sin. But we know someone who can, right? And that someone is? Yes, it's Jesus. And so Jesus, dying on the cross... When he forgave our sins, he basically ended our exile from God, right? He ended our banishment from the presence of God. He gave us this doorway into being able to be in God's presence all the time because of his work on the cross. So we can eliminate exile by constantly going to Jesus and confessing our sins and repenting and seeking him because we'll find him and being in his presence. When we're in his presence, we know that we're no longer in exile. Also, even though we can't eliminate sin in our life, we can actually try and live holy lives because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So it's not impossible for us to live holy lives. I know some people are like, oh, grace, grace, grace. I don't have to do, you know, I, have to, I don't have to obey this or obey that because God will always forgive me. But I don't think that's what God's wanting for us. He actually wants us to try and live holy lives. He wants us to try to live covenant-keeping lives. Um, and so for me, that personally actually speaks to me because I feel like one of the things that I really struggle with is keeping Sabbath, which is actually a commandment. And I forgot that this is one of the Ten Commandments, to keep Sabbath, to take a day just for the Lord and to give him your time. And it's actually really, really hard for, I think, a lot of us because time is so precious. And time is like the one thing that just 
It's so easily, you know, when it's gone, it's gone. We can never get it back. And so it's really been on my heart, God has really been putting on my heart to try and keep the Sabbath, try and keep a day just to plant gardens, just to have good relationships with my family, just to spend time with my friends, spend time with God, and to not work, to not study, to not do housework. Um, and that's really, really hard. If you saw my house, you would know how hard it is to not clean every day. So it's really been a struggle for me. But I feel like God is wanting me to eliminate this thing that's actually separating me from him, that's exiling me from God. And so he's saying, keep the Sabbath to me. He's saying, keep this covenant because it's a good thing. It's good for you. Once you eliminate this, once you are able to give me your time and trust that I'm actually going to take care of everything else that happens in the next six days, then I will be able to just be in his presence and have more time with him and hopefully understand what it's like to truly be home in his presence. Another way that we can eliminate exile is actually eliminating exile in the world. So <clears throat> we know that this little circle of friends, um, we are not exiled from God. We know what it's like to experience the presence of God. We know what it's like to have a relationship with God. And we know that it's a good thing. But the world around us have chosen to be in exile and have chosen to not experience the goodness of God. And so it's our job as people who have tasted heaven and see and known and seen that it's a good thing, our job is to be a blessing to the nations, to those people who are actually, we're in exile, but they're in like exile, exile. So our job is to be a blessing to those people who are in exile, exile, so that they can come to know Jesus. They can come to know that they no longer have to be separated from him. Um, another way that we can eliminate exile in the world is actually to pray for the world. And, you know, God tells the Israelites, pray for this place that you live in. And I was actually really convicted by this as I was studying, is that when's the last time I actually prayed for the world? You know, we're all kind of stressed out about this coronavirus and Everyone's, like, afraid to go anywhere, and toilet paper's all sold out at Costco. Um, so, you know, people are kind of going crazy right now. Um, there's a lot of fear, a lot of panic. And I really felt like, wow, God, not once have I sat down in my own personal time and prayed that you would handle this situation, that your peace and your presence would come upon this situation. And that people would know that when we are in your presence, when we have your spirit, there's no fear. There's no panic. There's no anxiety. Because we know that God is looking after us. And so that's another way that we can eliminate exile. Is by praying for the world around us. That they would know God. And they would no longer be in exile. So... There's no place like home. There's no place like being in the presence of God. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more lovely. There's nothing more joyful than being in God's presence. And that's what we were made for. Our hearts long to be in that perfect communion with our creator. And so we need to constantly usher in the presence of God. We need to constantly be inviting God's presence into our lives. So I want to end by maybe the worship team coming and playing a nice soft song and um, taking some time actually to talk to God. So if we can all kind of 
close our eyes and take some time to think about the things that keep us from the presence of God. What are some of the things that are keeping us from experiencing heaven in our lives? What are some of the things, the idols or the sins in our lives that have made us exiles from the presence of God? How have we made this world our true home instead of making the presence of God our home? So I just want to give you a little bit of time to ask the Holy Spirit to show you some of these things. And if you feel led to it, to confess and to repent and receive his forgiveness. Once we've done the things, once we've eliminated the things that have kept us from experiencing the presence of God and really knowing what it's like to be home with God, um, I'd like you to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to fill you for God's presence to come and fill that longing ache for home that only he can fill. we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are our true home. And God, that there is nothing sweeter, nothing more beautiful than being in your presence, than being home with you. And God, we just pray that you would show us how to live in this world, our home that's not yet our true home. How to live as exiles in this place. Lord, show us how we can plant gardens, how we can have little spots of heaven in our lives. Show us the areas in our life that need more of your presence, that need more of heaven to invade. And we ask you, God, to help us. Help us plant more gardens. Help us to be fruitful. Help us to do the things that we were created to do. And God, I pray that you would change our minds so that we're able to live and see the long game. That we're able to see that there are so many amazing, beautiful things that are in store for us in eternity. Help us to not hold on to things so tightly. Help us to hold loosely the things that you've given us. Help us to hold loosely our children, our relationships, our homes. 
Help us to hold loosely our money, our time, our energy, our resources. Lord, knowing that you are with us, knowing that you have plans to prosper us, that you have plans to give us a hope and a future. But it might not look the way that we expected it to look. And that's okay, God, because we trust you and we trust in your plans. And God, I just pray that you would help us to eliminate exile from our lives. Help us to spend time with you, Lord. I pray that for each one of us, God, that we would not be able to go throughout our days without meeting you, Lord, without being in your presence. God, I pray that you would um, put in all of us a desire to be a blessing, to eliminate exile from the rest of the world. Show us people that you want us to bless. Show us people that you want us to show you to, God. Help us to bring heaven into these people's lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who are willing to stand against the things of this world that exile this world from you. To stand up for injustice or stand against injustice. To stand up for the oppressed. To take a prophetic stance against the things that are not right. The things that you hate, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live this time on earth well. Live this time on earth with heaven in our hearts, in our spirits, and in our minds. So God, would you bless all of these lovely people today. May they experience more of you this week. May they experience more of heaven in every area of their life. May they know, may they experience what it's like to truly be home. So God, we thank you. And we just bless you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.